WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Dr. Prasad Srinivasan is looking to make New Haven and all of Connecticut tick. He's running for governor, a member of a growing club on the Republican side. We haven't found many Democrats yet ready to jump in. And he's here in the WNHH studio to tell us all about it. And we have a special thanks to Yale New Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. Welcome, Dr. Srinivasan. Thanks so much for making the ride down to New Haven and uh, joining us on WNHH Radio. Thank you very much for having me here, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here on the radio station with you. So, Dr. Srinivasan, just for those who don't know you in our area, you've been a Republican state representative now in your fourth term. From right. Glastonbury. Right. You're you're an allergy doctor, both a pediatrician, and you treat adults as well. Right. And you have lived over 30 years and practiced over 30 years in Glastonbury and Hartford. You're a ranking member of the Public Health Committee, I guess not surprising, as a doctor, and a Connecticut Magazine top doctor eight years in a row. Okay, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. So why are you looking to add governor to that list of titles and jobs? Paul, when you ask me that very deep question as to why I'm running for governor. You've got to know a little bit about who I am and where I came from and what brings me to this big decision in my life. Back in 1975, Paul, I landed at Kennedy Airport with $7.50 in my pocket. No roof about me. Where are you coming from? From India. I'm coming from India and landed at the airport not knowing where I'm going, nobody to receive me, nobody there at all. I'm obviously the first generation to come to this country. And what were the circumstances? Why did you leave India and how old were you? Uh, that's a good question about the age. I was about 22, 23 in that ballpark. I just finished my medical school uh, and uh, I wanted to get my residency. I wanted to do my fellowship in the United States having heard and read about as much as I could, and obviously make a life for myself and for my family in this beautiful country. So opportunity is what brought me to the shores of New York in 1975. Did you have a family at that point? In the United States? No, you said you came. Were you alone when you came? To yes, the very much so. Right. I was a single guy. Did you already have a residency lined up? No. no so you just came on a lark? Just came on a lark. I wouldn't say lark. Not on a lark. I mean, eight dollars, $7 is not a lot of money to have in your pocket. <laughs> coming out, even back in 1975 when that was money. And no, and, and no roof, remember. Not <laughs> even a place to go to. Not even a place to go to. And so that's where we began our life. And uh, our life in as much as... Uh, you know, I, I came in, I still remember vividly in the month of March. And as you know, residencies in this country start in July. So you have a gap between March and July to A, to apply for your residencies and get that. And, and then find an interim job that will carry you between the $7.50 until you get your first paycheck two weeks into July when you start your residence. I'm still just wondering where you went with that $7.50 when you got off. It's a very interesting story. Somebody had arrived at Kennedy Airport looking to take their friend to their home. So that was the, that was the plan. And uh, there was some flight delays, that, this, and the other. So this particular gentleman who should have arrived on the same flight as I did, did not land. Mm. So I'm walking, pacing up and down Kennedy Airport, wondering what to do. And this gentleman is also pacing up Kennedy Airport wondering who is this person that I'm supposed to receive who's not here, who's not here. So he comes up and thinks, you know, we all look different from what, what our photographs look like and what we are in person, right? So he taps me on the shoulder, and I can remember this as if it happened yesterday, though it was back in 1975. Are you Mr. So-and-so? I said, no, I'm not Mr. So-and-so, but I'm Dr. Prasad Srinivasan. I said, oh, really? And he said, where are you going? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and then he, out of the kindness of his heart and his generosity, said, you know what? The person that I've come to receive is not here. And uh, I, I'm sure you have no place to go to. I said, absolutely no place to go to. So why don't I take you home and settle down in my apartment and maybe you'll... I mean, I, I mean, he was not a physician. He was not a physician. He was an engineer or something like that. And he said, maybe then you can st stay with me, look around for a job, 
and get something. Oh so my that's, goodness, sounds almost mystical. So yeah, it is. So, but he didn't know who he was, whom he was picking up. That's right, and neither did I but know. But why was, was he going. picking this person up? I'm sorry. Why was he picking this? No, other that was his up? friend arriving at, on their flight. Oh, okay. On their flight, he had come to the airport to receive a friend. Gotcha. So re- then, did did you bunk up with the friend when the friend did come? Oh yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, right. I did, I did, and so we were there together for a period of time, and then I had found my contacts. Remember the. The interesting thing is we are, we are going back in time in 1975. No internet. No, uh, no, no uh, cell phone. We didn't know what a cell phone meant, right? We didn't right. know what it looked right. like. And so for me to reach my contacts in the United States, I did have a long list of people that, that would you know give me shelter for a couple of days to help me out and get my job. But I hadn't connected with them. But then staying with this gentleman's house, apartment, I was able to reach out to a bunch of these people. And then obviously was able to hook up with them and stay with them. So this transition was maybe over about a, a three, four day period. But you can just imagine arriving here, not knowing anything at all. This is an origin story. So where, where, <laughs> did you get a residency by four months from now? Yes, that? right, right. I applied. I wanted to do pediatrics. I was very clear about that. And I, because I, I, I wanted to do pediatrics in India as well. And before I got my green card to come to this country. So I started a program back in India in residency, but just just an internship kind of a, kind of a program. So I came to, Canada, to New York and right from day one, I, I think I must have landed on a Thursday or a Friday, but you know, hit the pavement right on Monday morning in a hospital to hospital to hospital to try to put in your application, get the process going. Remember, there's no internet, no nothing and like that. And you had that. no address either. I'm sorry. How did you apply without an address? No, the, my, the, the place that I stayed, I just oh, used use that. that. I just okay. used that address, and then he would be kind enough to forward because you know I was going to go from you know from wow, place what, to what place. What a mensch! You still know this guy? No, no. <laughs> you didn't stay friends. Yeah. Because I mean, the story should have ended where somebody was having a heart attack or an allergy fit while you were there, and you saved them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but remember, I was not an allergist at that point. Okay. I, I was just an MD. I was just an MD. I hadn't done my residency. I hadn't done my fellowship. None so of you must have had quite a bit of confidence, right? It, it, even though we all are maybe bolder when we're younger, to be able to come with no destination right, and nothing right. set up, that you were able to come like that, is that something that's specific to your character? Is that where you were going and saying that's why you're running for governor now? No, you know, you know maybe there is a personality trait there that you know, you, you, you know what you need to do. And then as we walk through the path, we will figure out how you get there, you know. So maybe that that was there, not just as of yesterday and today. It's a part of me that to be able to come here, not knowing anyone at all, and to start a new life. And then I was able to get an interim job, uh, you know, between, you know, taking me from the month of April through June. And which uh, was just a, like a, a house residency where you're a, a doc that just goes in at night and then takes care of the patients overnight. Oh, okay. If there's you a, you didn't have to be licensed in in New York. No, no, they, they because of the fact that you came under the umbrella of the hospital, whatever. Oh. Because you know, because you were under a physician, you, you you were not doing anything independent at all. So you had somebody covering you all the time, but you were the hands-on person at that particular point. And then you you did that for a couple of months, and then got your first paycheck. Couldn't believe the first paycheck, and I don't remember now how much it was. And and that's how we started Let my me ask life. You something. We think back in those times in our lives. So now you're how old now? In your, uh, sixty-seven. When you think you're sixty-seven, you're well established. You've been almost forty years a practicing doctor. You're a state right. representative. You're running for governor. Is there something innocent when you think about that time in your life when you had nothing and the world was kind of open before you? Absolutely, absolutely. If if you know, if you'll allow me the luxury, I'll just got to share this very. Uh, almost like a, uh, the romantic life that we lived in the city on a limited budget. Remember, we can all do these fancy things when the budget is well, limited. Well, that was back in New York in the 70s, the story time where some people didn't have money. Right. <laughs> you could do So you could buy a souvlaki for three bucks. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So our budget, my, I still remember this, my wife and I will remember this, and we still tease our kids about this at all. We had a budget when we went out for dinner and we did that every third day because in those days residency which we had was you know you were on one day which means you were on call 24 hours you came home the next day at 6 p.m having gone to work the previous day at 6 a.m 
So you'll be at work from 6 a.m. 36 hours, that the kind of razzing they give. The, right. Uh, and so that evening when he came home at 6 o'clock, all you needed was to eat, eat some food and, and hit the bed because obviously you were not a human being at that particular point. But the third day, Third day, you were you mean often as much as you went to work at seven and got home at six p.m. So yeah, so that was your day off, quote unquote. So she, Carla and I would take the train, the sub. Right now, I was a resident, so earning something, and we would go to Manhattan every third day. Every third day, go out for dinner, one restaurant or the other. And as we walk into the restaurant, we would tell each other, remind each other, remember, we are on a $10 budget because that's the budget we had to have dinner for the two of us for 10 bucks. So we would very politely when the waitress would come, oh, I don't think I'm in a mood for this or a mood for that. I don't think I want coffee today. I don't think I want dessert today because obviously 10 bucks for two of us would get you a meal. Back I used to be in New York around then. I used to hang out and I used to be able to eat. I remember Burger and Brew. There was a place in Manhattan where you could get unlimited beer and unlimited Hamburgers oh, okay. for one yeah. price. Yeah, right. I, think, I think that fit within the budget. <laughs> that made, yeah, two people's budget. Remember, two two people have to eat. <laughs> yeah, I was pushing a little bit. All right. So, do you reminisce on those days? The absolutely. So you look yeah, back, and there's always a smile on the face when you think of those days. So, where were you going with with this, Doctor Srinivasan? How did this story tie into your decision now to seek the Republican nomination for governor in the state of Connecticut? All right. Where the story fits in is that after having done my fellowship in Chicago, where I, that's where I finished. I chose to come to Connecticut back in 1980, so five years of residency and fellowship, and having gone through those interesting phases in my life, settling down, so on and so forth. So why did I come to Connecticut? This was not my home. This is not what I was born. This is not what I was raised. Obviously, we have no family, just my wife and I and our two-year-old son. I chose to come to Connecticut back in 1980, because Connecticut was a place where we felt, having done my homework, due diligence, where I could raise a family, have a good quality of life, and hopefully have a successful practice as well. You really picked Connecticut? You had your finger in an atlas and you did that instead of North Dakota or Napa Valley we, or Colorado? We Boulder. definitely went to, to North Dakota for mm -hmm. interviews. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I flew up there, had a wonderful interview, wonderful interview. The gentleman whom we interviewed with, I mean, joining a practice of an allergist there in North Dakota, was ready to sign me on right at the very moment. He wouldn't even let me catch the flight <laughs> back home. And he said, no, this is not home. This doesn't feel right. Connecticut felt right from, from the very first time we came for the interview. Of course, we were going back and forth. The first time I just came by myself, I felt right from Chicago. My wife and I came with my son. So you settled in Glastonbury. Well, we, when we came here, we, you know, obviously, you know, you got to settle down first. So we were in an apartment in Avon. And then after that, after the first year, we really felt this is home for us. Because right around the time my wife and I made the decision to settle here too, but that's because we were in New Haven, which is the most fun city to live in around. Right. Avon? No, Avon, right. That's where we found the apartment. Avon was Nirvana or even Glastonbury? <laughs> Glastonbury for education. Mm -hmm. You know, by that time, we, you know, our son, they're already thinking ahead. Mm -hmm. And we did our homework, due diligence. Where, where are the great public schools? Because we were very clear that we're going to put our children, both, I mean, one kid at that time and hopefully have another one. And would be go through the public school system because we firmly believe in that. I, myself having been a graduate of a public school system. So we looked around and said, you know what? Glastonbury is known, well known for schools, and that's what we call... So now it's 2017, you're running for the 2018 nomination. Are you going with this that you might not have chosen Connecticut today if you were the, right, exactly. the young that's man who just got out of right. medical residency and looking to start a family? And, and, and that's exactly my point. You hit it right there, that you know the, Glass, the Connecticut that I found back in 1980... As I'm sure we all agree, is not what the Connecticut is at this point. Actually, in New time. Haven's a lot better. It is a lot better. Yes, New Haven's had a renaissance, all right? And and so has Middletown. I mean, there are yeah. towns that are in, if you pick and choose, there are areas that I see. But there's that, no question the state government's a mess. Is and and we need to turn that around. We need to revive Connecticut. We need to make it prosperous again. And that's the agenda. And that's why I'm seeking to be at the head of the table. And you're listening to Doctor. Um, Prasad Srinivasan, who is just telling us why he's seeking the 2018 Republican nomination for Governor of State of Connecticut. You're listening to him on Dateline New Haven on WNHH Radio, broadcast at 103.5 FM, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. So let's get a little specific. 
Dr. Sunivasan, you've been a state legislator for four, in your fourth term now, and you just voted against the state budget. New Connecticut was the last state in the country mm-hmm. to pass mm-hmm. a state budget. Those towns you talk about that are struggling, they now had to start a fiscal year not even knowing how much money they're going to get, have Correct. panicked about laying off teachers, closing schools, what days, whatever they're going to do. So the budget finally came up where Democrats and Republicans agreed, which was no mean feat. But you still voted against it. Why was that? Thank you for asking <clears throat> that question. You know, this budget, and I, I do want to, to compliment uh, both, the, um, both my side, the Republicans, as well as the Democrats, for the hard work that they put in from June to where we are right now, into October, late October, for us to get a budget. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not just we got it in June or got it in July. We already passed a budget, as you're well aware of, a bipartisan budget, a budget where we got the Democratic votes on the Senate as well as in the House. But, you know, unfortunately, the governor chose to veto that budget and we didn't have enough votes. Neither of the previous incarnation where a handful of Democrats split. Correct. Correct. And but but I mean, that was the budget that that was that I was supporting. And that's a budget that I wanted. What changed that made it lose your support? The this budget, this budget, unfortunately, we talked and talked about structural changes. If I look at things that I want to see in a budget, it is the most important thing for me is we cannot have a band-aid approach and continue to have band-aid approach year after year. The band-aid just gets bigger and bigger. We need structural changes. And when I say structural changes, we need a constitutional spending cap that has to be, that has to be a true spending cap. Meaning you can't count certain kinds of spending as off budget. Right. And that's exactly, um, if, you, if, you, if you go back to the debate on the floor of the House, which I got up and spoke about the budget, and my questions on the budget was precisely that. It are is everything included in the in, in the spending cap? Are there things that you're going to say that are no longer included? Then I don't call it a spending cap. For me, for, for us to say, you know what? We and that ca- became a bottom line, this issue, to have you vote against the budget that, after all that compromise? No, and- that's to begin that. Constitutional spending cap was not there. I am I'm, I'm, I'm against in the the bonding cap. We wanted we wanted a stricter bonding cap. And what did we do? We're just kicking the can further down the road. And a one billion was what I wanted. And here we are, one point six, one point eight, one point nine. Now and then we all are thrilled when we are under the bonding cap when we can't afford it to begin with. So the bonding cap is unacceptable. The constitutional spending cap, everything was not included, is going to be phased in. And there's no discussion of how are we going to address our long-term debt. You know, you know what we have. We have to address that issue because 20%, give or take, 20-21% of our expenses of our state are fixed spending. A lot of that dates back to both Democrat and Republican governors who didn't put money in the pension fund, correct? Would absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so how would you address that if uh, it were it, up to you? It, it has to be readdressed. It yeah. has to be, and, 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 and let's, let's look in a bipartisan way. Look at, the, let, look at the, the Democratic governor from Rhode Island. What did she do? She looked at the subject matter, and she was able to restructure her long-term debt. Look at Scott Walker from Wisconsin on the other side of the aisle, and he was able to do that. We need to have bold leadership. But if there were easy restructuring with debt, we would just do it, right? The problem is that you're kicking it further down the road if you have lower payments in a bunch of years, and then they balloon later, correct? Of course, and that's why the CBAC agreement, if you remember, which we had earlier... That's the earlier, coalition of unions, right, state and, unions. Right, and, yeah, and, and, and we, I, I didn't agree with that in the Republicans. Oh, that went along party okay, so lines. you voted no, but it passed, and reluctantly on Tuesday, Governor Malloy signed correct. the budget. Would you, if, you're, if you were elected governor, would you sign that budget? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. And the reason for that, and I've said that before. So you vote it, against it, but sign it. Right. Because now, now, if you look at it, I'm the governor. You know, yes, unfortunately, and as strange as it may be, that this governor was not even involved in the budget at all, as you know. Or they but, iced him out because they said, we're not going to pass this thing unless we just get in a room and do it. Correct. So it was only the Democrats. It's only the Republicans that were in, in the room. The governor's office was totally out of the room. And, and hopefully that never happens to me, that I will always be in conversation because I think it has got to be. Everybody's got to be at the table. The governor's office, the House, as well as the Senate, both sides of the aisle, have to be there. You also look at what is inevitable. 
And if we saw how it passed about the House, we saw how it passed in the Senate. Veto-proof majority. Veto-proof. And not just by minimal margins, huge margins, both in the House and the Senate. So when I look at what's in front of me, and, and knowing what is inevitable about this budget, that is the r- reason. Do I support this budget? The answer is no. But we all have to live with reality. And the reality is, this is the budget, a budget that's veto-proof. And if it's going to be veto-proof, let's move on, and then hopefully come 18. Are you saying there's an inherent difference between the role of a governor and a legislator? That let's say to you're, you're representing one group of people in Glastonbury, and as a governor, you have to think more about the whole state? Yes and no. As I know, as, as a representative, you do, obviously, you always think of your constituents first. No question about that at all. But also, whatever action you take, you know is going to have an impact on the entire state. So you're not, you are always thinking about your own, own constituents, your own, uh, the area that you represent. But also, I think every legislator has a look at the big picture as well. If this, if this budget, if this budget had not been veto-proof, as veto-proof as it was, of course I wouldn't have signed it. And let us see what happens to that particular budget. Hank Agarway writes in to you that she's listening or he's listening to the show. Thanks for uh, listening in our Facebook Live with Dr. Prasad Srinivasan. So tell me where you would cut. In other words, um, am I right to assume that you opposed uh, tax increases? Absolutely. And there are in this budget, as you know, there are tax increases. There are transfers, which I've opposed to. And if you saw, and yet they, and yet they raise the earned income tax credit. So even though there are tax cuts, even though there are, they're they're raising taxes really on poor and middle class right. people. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So if if you look at the tax increases that are there, if you look at the transfers that are there between what happens in the tobacco settlement fund, which have always opposed that money. That money that comes to us year after year from the tobacco settlement fund, and in this budget is $6 million, is being transferred into the general fund. We know what's happening to the clean energy fund. You know, $67 plus million is being transferred out, and I don't even know if it's legal or not because it's ratepayers' money. It's ratepayers' money that we are saying, you know what, I need the extra funds, so let me transfer that over. So, so where, transfers, where would you cut? So in other words, how would you still fund government? If you're not going to raise revenues, what would you cut out of state government so that we do have a balanced budget? The area we all have to look at again and again and again is the inefficiencies in our state. Okay, people have always said that when they run for office. Now when they get elected, whether it was the Gore Commission with Al Gore or Republicans, they never really find stuff that adds up to a whole lot when they're in. Do you specifically, can you look at this budget which is a forty billion two dollar two year budget forty one billion right and say I can really cut one or two billion dollars out of that and the answer and the answer should be yes and that's what I'm working on right now and but being, do you have specifics yes let's look back we don't have to go too far in in Middletown we we heard the scandal that's happening at Whiting Whiting Forensic we're all well aware of that we look at the overtime look at the mandated overtime. It costs almost a half a million dollars on an annual basis to take care of one resident there. That's what it costs the state. Is it a fair amount to take care of somebody in that position? The answer is yes, if everything is done correctly. But when you have, when you have consistently and constantly, I'm not even talking about the medical horrors. That's a different story altogether. The humanness or the inhumanness that's happening there is, it, as you know, is being investigated. So we won't even go at that particular part of it. We'll stay out of it. But we are, as public health ranking member, we, I've just I've been to forensic whiting not too long ago and had a, had a tour to see what's happening there. We've met the commissioners to get a, get an input, and we are asking, we a we are asking, we are requesting, and to the point of demanding that we have a public hearing because we need that. What kind of cut can you make? And, and that is looking at is the it overtime. overtime. And how much money can you really? Now, overtime is mandated in union contracts, correct? No, it's not mandated. It's just oh. the way it's given out. It's given out, you know, and 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 overtime. There are two different kinds of overtime, right? The regular overtime that you would look at is time and a half, which itself is excessive. And then comes the mandated overtime, which is times two. And then, and then what is what a culture there, which we need to investigate, which is what I'm told, 
is there is a pattern, there's a culture just in one place. So I'm, can you just multiply that, what's happening in the entire state? The culture there is you, Paul, will sign up for overtime. Last minute, you will say, you know what, I'm sorry to the management, I can't show up, blah, 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 because this is all done internally. And Prasad shows up because obviously they have to call me because they, who's going to take care of them. And now it is mandated over time at times two. So it is a systematic approach that is that I'm told, which I don't know for true if that's happening or not. But people have come up and told me this and we need to investigate. I'm just giving you one example. Give me another example, a big ticket item you could cut. Uh, it, it, uh, if you've got to look at what goes into the pension plan. You know, that is, so when this, when, when a person who's making in the ballpark on paper, it's fifty to $60,000 on an annual basis, give or take 80, ends up with a W-2 of a quarter million dollars year after year after year. You can just imagine all of that quarter million dollars is going towards the pension benefits, is padding the pension be- benefits, and that is Meaning what, when you retire, that is going yeah, to be based on that. And, and that's why we have. We are in the hole. You say, you're absolutely right. It's not, it's not a Democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's been going on, but that has to stop, and that's absolutely critical. We look at that. We need to look at health care. And I do want to get to health care because the, your doctor, Dr. Prasad Srinivasan, you're running for the Republican nomination for governor in the year 2018. And you're here on Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio at 103.5 and live streamed on newhavenindependent.org. So health care has been a big issue for you, so, uh, not surprisingly, because you're a lifelong doctor. What is your platform in terms of how you would improve health care in the state and have the government run it better? The government will do it much better if it will not interfere as much as it does. I think the moment you have so much of the government involvement in healthcare is where it is falling Here's apart. An, give me an example. Well, look at Medicare, look at Medicaid. You know, Medicare, obviously, a federal program. Medicaid, a locally state-run program. Are these programs done, run efficiently? And the answer is no. And the inefficiencies, the, the administrative cost of running these programs is in excess of 18%. That's just the, it, no services rendered. No services rendered. What's it in private? Like what's the administrative cost at your, at your practice? Oh, administrative cost, I would say probably in the range of about 7 to 8%. And I'm sure that's a lot of paperwork you wish you didn't have to do and have it even be that high. Right, right, right. No, but, but that's no, but once again, some paperwork is necessary. And in the good old days, back in 1980s, we never knew what was happening. But now we have a good track record. You go to the emergency room. Unfortunately, I know when you come to see me on Monday or Tuesday, what you, what you went there for, what was done. So I don't have to repeat that. So there are some efficiencies. There's no question about so that at all. So what's making the overhead go so high with Medicare and Medicaid? It's just, it's just, it, it's, it's bureaucracy. As simple as that, simple word, bureaucracy. But it's not layers so and layers. I mean, untangled bureaucracy. There's reasons they put in there. Requirements get put in by legislators for certain kinds of documentation, right? No, it is it is the layers of you got the assistant manager, you got somebody on top of the assistant manager, and then you got the manager, and then you got somebody that the managers who report. To, I meant bureaucracy in that way. Paperwork is essential. Well, I mean, do I like able, it? Do you, I like it as a physician? Have you taken on this issue at all as a state representative? As a state, yes, absolutely. So what did you do? Now, I think if, if I look back at what we need to accomplish, if you look at the basics and how do we get there, the three important things for healthcare are you need to have access. There's no question about that at all. I mean, you could have all the insurance that you have in the world, but if you're not able to get to a provider, you're not able to get to a healthcare giver or doctor, what good is access? So access is critical. Cost is, of course, we need to contain cost. And the third arm is you can never com- compromise quality. So those are the three arching principles when you think in terms of healthcare. And, if- and how do we get there? Mm-hmm. And one of the very important things we ne- I need to do, we need to do as a state, is look at where we are in terms of malpractice reform. Why is it? Why is it? We have three wonderful universities, medical schools in our own state. 
And how come we are not able to retain the graduates, whether it be Quinnipiac, we just started, you know, the first batches came out, Yale, and of course at UConn. Those doctors, at the end, they, all, they compete fearless, fiercely to get to these programs. After having graduated, when they do the, the internship, when they do their residency, guess what? They don't stay back in Connecticut at all. And you think that's because of malpractice? Of course. I why, mean, why it's not, it, it's not it the higher? only reason. But why cost is it of living, here? Why cost, is cost of living. Cost of living, of course, in Connecticut is higher. And so people in automatically move to places where the climate, where the malpractice climate is not as difficult as it is here. So I, I'm not saying there's a simple solution. I'm not saying that well, you know why what. Is, why is malpractice insurance higher in Connecticut? It, it is that's the way it's been over years and years of adding. How this. does the governor change that? And the governor changes by getting people. And I have, I have introduced this legislation. As you asked me, what was my role as a legislator? My role as a legislator is we need to revisit, revisit the entire malpractice. It hasn't been done in a while. We need to look at it again. And tort reform is one very important thing we need to do. Get all the players, all the uh, all the stakeholders at the table. It's it's the it's the physician groups, it's the medical providers, it's the insurance, it's the trial lawyers, it's the advocacy groups. Everybody needs to be at the table. Let's do this for the next six months to a year and come up with a program. Uh, come up with what is right. What to bring we're down doing. the cost. Now, obviously, there are two sides of the tort reform debate. One side is that you need malpractice insurance and strong tort law to protect people who are harmed. And the other side is that if it's unnecessary and too high, it makes it hard to actually practice. Absolutely. Oh, th- there's no question at all we need that. Are people harmed when they're taken care of? Unfortunately, yes. So am I saying that, oh, the, the patient or the advocacy groups have no voice at all? No, far from that. Far from that. Would be in, that would be, you know, that's not the right, right way to go. Dr. I'm sure one thing you hear a lot about from doctors, I hear from doctors in the state and from hospitals is they feel there's insufficient reimbursement for Medicaid and Medicare, especially Medicaid, correct? Right, right. So that in some ways it's kind of hard to take Medicaid patients because you get 85 cents on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar, right, if you're, of what your cost is? Okay. Is, is Let, that the way you see, do you agree with doctors who tell you that? And have you right, tried to take I, oh, I definitely agree. I live that life. I don't need to. <laughs> so do you take Medicaid and Medicare patients? Of course, And um, how much do you get reimbursed for yeah, them? Yeah, you said 85, and I have a big smile on my face. I only wish, I only wish. 25 is the answer, Paul. 25 cents on the dollar. 26 cents so on the dollar. So how can you afford to do it? it you can't. Is and that that's, Medicare or Medicaid? Medicaid. So Medicaid. is that like pro bono work yes, for you? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Any, any physician... Any provider, healthcare provider, physician, APRN, <laughs> PAs that take care of our Medicaid patients in their offices are actually doing pro bono work. So if you don't want to raise taxes, how are you going to up the amount the Medicaid pays? I know it's a federally funded program, but obviously there would need to be a state addition if you want it to be 75 instead of 26. Right. And, 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 and those are the challenges we'll have to face. And then when, when it is a question of reimbursement, along with the malpractice component that comes in. So you're saying if you lower the cost, you might not have to raise more revenue to cover higher Co- Right, it is the cost. We've got to look at cost. We've got to look at cost. In fact, later today, <coughs> I'm going to be a panelist on healthcare discussion later on in the evening, where the subject matter is going to be how do we contain costs and how are we in comparison to the world at large? And when you look at the world at large, nowhere else, nowhere else in the entire globe do they spend on healthcare, as much as we do, and not necessarily get better outcomes. Absolutely, but absolutely. we also pay our, you know doctor, what we pay our doctors a lot more too. It, it, do you know the difference in uh, uh, in uh, uh, length of life between our nation, which is about seventy nine years, that's the uh, lifespan, and other nations, other nations, eighty two, eighty three, eighty four. Others industrialized, yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, right. The thirty five industrialized countries, yeah. which form a consortium, and they all have. Their lifespan is far better than ours when we spend in excess of three yeah. times in terms of delivering our health care. Part of the cost, I'm not saying it's the major driver, is doctors get paid more here, correct? The doctors get, it's the services. It is it's not just a physician. It is all the various. But I mean, the average doctor makes more money in America than in England, that's for sure. In uh, well, France. Well, they, they, they've, they've, absolutely. But, but they have different programs as well. You know, it is, you know, whether you're going to go with a national program. 
Oh, you're going to be. If you go to single payer national health insurance, doctors would have to be paid less. Right, right. If the single payer, I mean, well, there's a difference between uh, you know universal care, right. which is and people tend to confuse the two. Single payer means who's paying the bill. Who's paying the insurance, bill? The uh, government's insurance company doesn't mean the doctors are private, and then you can have a national health insurance like in Britain, where the doctors work for the government, but you don't have to. Correct. Correct. So, correct. how do you feel about single payer health care? Single payer health care in my in my way of looking at things will not work. Why is that? And the reason is that once again, the bureaucracy between, if you look at Medicare and the translation of Medicare, I mean, we have a single payer system already. If you look at Medicare, Medicare yeah. if, and Medicaid, right? People who are, uh, who are in, s- serving the, the various armed forces, people who are in federal services. So the all VA, of them yeah. come in under this, in a, and their insurance is all covered to the government. Veterans, you know, a whole group of and people. most of us would love to have beyond that plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're all, uh, that itself, estimates tell me, 52 to 57% of our population, of our national population. So the question it, basically is how much is, all, is already on So why in, in Canada and England are people happier with the healthcare and getting better outcomes than here and they have single payer. Well, I think Is, are those facts unrelated? I think there's a little confusion in what you just said, and I just want to make sure we clarify that. Are they getting better outcomes? The answer is yes, absolutely yes. Are they spending less? The answer is yes. But also, also you got to remember that it is not a single payer system as we think it to be because it's government run. It, no, it's government run, and and those who can afford it are all getting the additional private insurance as well. So for those of us who are here saying that all of England, all of Great Britain... Yeah, but still, was it 40 million people don't have insurance still in America? I yes. Mean, so right. they, 35, they'd be better 35, off... Yeah, be 35 off with, 10%, right? So they'd be talking, better off with that single-payer plan than without. No, uh, let, let's go back again. I'm not sure I understood you clearly. If they don't have insurance here, and right. we had, if we had single payer and they had insurance, they'd be better off even if there is a supplemental plan for people who have the money, right? Well, there's single payer, but then who's going to pay for that? That's how you'll have to come up with. I mean, as mm-hmm. you said, single payer only means that it is a taxpayer dollar that's going to pay for As opposed for to private insurance where right. we're getting charged so much and we have a bureaucracy that... Would you agree that insurance companies, health insurance companies have not been responsive to the interests of patients? Well, they, they they have another agenda. They have right. they, they have their own agenda. Pharmaceutical companies have their own agenda, and all of that are part of the puzzle. So when mm-hmm. we look at healthcare costs, you've got to look at at what are the mandates that we as legislators, whether it be at the state level or the federal level, put on the insurance company. I mean, just yesterday I had in a conversation talking about mandates that insurance company insurances have. They said, "Hey, doctor, why my a guy tells me why does my insurance plan mandate coverage for mammograms, and why does my wife's program?" And what did you tell that person? And it was an interesting conversation. We need to look at that, and why does she, in her insurance? One of the things that I included is a prostate in, uh, evaluation. And that's by having universal coverage, the cost comes down for everybody rather than have someone who has a specific need driving, having Correct. to pay higher right. costs. And, and so I think we've got to look back and see as to what is the system. And when you have a single-payer system, a single-payer system, and it's obviously if it's a single-payer system, it's going to be the, the, you know, the taxpayer that's going to foot the bill. There is no competition. There is no incentive. But in the other system, the taxpayer pays less than that taxpayer now pays to insurance companies or the employer. I mean, small business gets killed by not having a single payer system because, like, I have to pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars for some people's insurance at our right. company. Right. Oh, me too. And I on mean, single payer, they are, at least the studies say that I would be paying less than that, even if it were through taxes. It, it would, but but my, but my point is that at the end of the single payer, at the end of the single payer is what is the insurance that the person is getting. Is it enough? Exactly. I, I, if we agree, if we agree, and this is, this is a discussion, philosophical discussion we need to have and say that, you know, when it comes to certain services, certain services, when, uh, w- what is our moral obligation? We have got to take care of those in need. You know, we, we have to provide a safety net. No question about that at all. And we do. When we, we provide people f- shelter, we give them food, and we give them clothing. But when we provide them shelter, they're not going to have the same shelter as you have. They're not going to live in the house that you do or I do. But we as a state, 
we as a nation say this is the minimum amount that you need and give them that but when it comes to healthcare we are not able to do that and cannot say i'm only going to give you this but i'm not going to give you that and that's the debate that to me is a bigger debate that all of us need to be at the table and say what is the basic minimum coverage if you define if you are able to define both morally ethically and able to live with that just like all other conditions right whether it be food whether it be shelter whether it be cl- food is important food is important you know i've been you know i you know there's a uh, a program that was which which wanted all us to, for us to try as to how you live on food stamps right uh, and i did that i volunteered for that yeah. for a week you got to live for a whole week on food stamps so that was, i mean obviously we didn't collect the money but we were told what the and amount you and you, I, i have family members on food stamps and you can't eat fruits and vegetables for half the yeah, week yeah absolutely yeah. so how do you how do you up food stamps without raising taxes I'm sorry. I, uh, how, how do you pay more for food stamps? No, no, I'm not saying you're paying for. And what no. I'm saying is, but there, morally, ethically, we are able to say, uh-huh. I'm going to give you this and not give you so that. So is the answer, should we morally and ethically just say we're not going to give you enough money for subsistence existence, or should we say we should broaden our definition of um, what the minimum that's, is? That's a very deep conversation. That's a deep conversation we as a society need to have. What is bare minimal? For us to go around and say that your diet will not have fruits, will not have vegetables because you can't afford that, and a huge bag of potato chips is all that you can have, and pay for that on the back end. where right. obesity becomes an issue and then obviously we all know what we're going to deal with that so for me when you look at healthcare the biggest debate that i have in my mind is what is it that we are able to accept and what is it that we are able to say you know what unfortunately this is harsh reality you can only do this but you cannot do that the the bulk of what we spend in healthcare is practically in the last two weeks or maybe three weeks of so your life. So when people try to talk about that, they get accused of supporting death, what's it called, death panels. Oh, right, absolutely. Or, or rationing, right? They call you, I mean, that's what But we do told. it anyway, right? Uh, well, you know, we do it in as much as, in as much as, but, but, but is that the right way to do that? What do you is think? That the, no, it is, it's not a question of think. It's a question of, it's a conversation. It is a deep conversation that we need, we as a nation, unfortunately but it is all posturing that we do you know to get elected to get get what you need you're going to say what you need no i don't believe in that at all it is healthcare is a deep conversation we need to get people at the tables not a quick fix is not going i'm not going to be able to come out and say this is a magic plan that i have we're going to cut costs we're going to maintain quality and have access that's the dream That's a dream that we need to have, but how do we get there is not going to happen overnight. Right, the deep conversation we- is here on WNHH's Dateline New Haven with Dr. Prasad Srinivasan, who's running for the Republican gubernatorial nomination for 2018. A big, big uh, pack of people running. Okay. So when you come to, now you're familiar with New Haven. I was talking to um, to you, your wife, Kyle, before you came on, who's also your campaign manager. You can right. get in the family. Yeah. And you know New Haven pretty well from two, year 2000, your class 2000 at Yale, your son. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you used to come down here quite a bit. Correct. What's your pitch to New Haven? New Haven has not voted for Republican in a citywide election since 1951. That's the last time a Republican has won a competitive election from citywide. Correct. What's going to be your pitch for why New Haven should vote for you? My pitch, when I go into the cities... And I know, I'm well aware of that. In what way am I different than your conventional Republican? Obviously, I look different. That, that, that's right off the bat. But that's not about that. It is about communication. And as a physician, as a, as a person who's been in private practice, always in conversation, always you know, in, be having the opportunity to relate to patients, I know I have the skill sets to listen i have the skill sets to be able to communicate and that to me is a very important skill set so for me to come to new haven for me to go to bridgeport to hartford and new britain and they be able to hey what is it that is that is on your mind and let me listen to that so you need to be a, an effective communicator you need to be able to be a good negotiator You need to be able to crisscross and say, can I get all that I want? Of course not. It's Do you like, have a governor who 
whom you look at as a model, like Bobby Jindal, you said you don't look like the Republicans, so there have been Indian American Correct. governors, Bobby Republican governors, Bobby Jindal in Louisiana, Nikki Haley, who was a governor and now is the um, our ambassador. ambassador of the United Nations. Right, right. Are those your models? My model is Ronald Reagan. Okay. Yes, he doesn't look like me. There's no, <laughs> there's no question about that because he had the vision of what America should look like. He had, he had it in him. He knew our best days are ahead of us. And he, you know, he talked about living on the shining city. And I firmly believe that, yes, we are living in our darkest days, as I think, in Connecticut. But remember, it's always darkest before dawn. And that's where we are right now. We have a bright future in our state. And I have the vision to be able to accomplish that. So Ronald Reagan also said, and you quote this in your website, uh, his famous warning that more government doesn't solve problems Government is the problem. Some people felt that was a, a divisive trend in this country when he started making people see government as the problem rather than government as us. Well, I, I, I would agree with Ronald Reagan and because I think... Well, it, who is the government if no, they're not the government? The, the government in as much as they don't, do not need to be in your face for every single thing. There are jobs... There are priorities where it is important for us to have them. You know, we obviously, if you look at defense, who's going to defend the nation? Who's going, who's going to take care so of us? So is the us? government not them when it comes to defense? No, it's not a question of them. But when we say we are not trying to be divisive, we need the right amount of government, just the right amount. We do not need them to be involved in every aspect of our lives. Let me just give you an example. Last year, or the year before, if memory serves me right. We passed legislation here in our state where we gave the government the authority to say, if you don't have an IRA or you don't have some pension plan, the state government is going to provide the businesses and businesses have no choice but to participate in that because they didn't do... Stay out of that. It, why should the government get involved in the in well things? the argument is because people couldn't afford to retire without that no but, but there, there are there are thousands of options if, if you so do you support the Republican budget plan now that would limit those options for saving for retirement no I, I, no but I have to look at that it, it is I mean you know it's <laughs> it's a changing landscape right I think but, but what I, what I saw on the news this morning and what it is close to 11 11 or 11 30 right now I think by the time I go home it's, it's going to be, be a different plan different, altogether right. and about, uh, just like how like are you a supporter of Donald Trump do you think he's doing a good job did you vote for him look let's look at am I a supporter of, of Donald Trump I support our president. And I would support any and every president who sits at that seat, him or her, because presidency is the person. You respect the office. Absolutely. Did you, absolutely. Did you support him for president? No. And you know, it was clear that you know, and and I've said that on my website. It was not on. Is not something. Whom that, did you support? Well, I, I, my my first choice had always been John Kasich. That's what I was going to guess. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so if from my background, my values. I think if Kasich is running here next year, he might have a pretty good shot if he were from Connecticut. No, but once again, but when you look back at now, we have the president. I support the presidency. And I've over and over again said there are issues that he brings up that I'm supportive of and will support him all the way. And there are other things he brings up that I have not supported, and I've not been shy about it. I have made it very clear and put it up on the web website, whether it be sanctuary cities, whether yeah, it be Neil. Where do you stand on sanctuary cities? I, 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 I believe no, I don't support sanctuary cities. And why is that? And because I, you've got you've got to follow law, law and order. I mean, if you and I decide to say, you know what, I, I decide that I, I'm going to follow this law because it suits me, I'm not going to follow. It's going to be chaos. Okay, let, chaos. Let's do it quick because we're almost out of time, lightning round. What about public finance for campaigns? Now, you've qualified, correct, for public financing? Correct. What did you have to raise, 250000 in small donations? Yeah, quarter million dollars. That's a lot of work. A lot, well, the, the person doing the work is sitting next to me. <laughs> do you support, there have been talk about on doing public financing, do you support the public financing system? Well, that's a very interesting question that you asked, because the first budget, the Republican budget that the governor did not sign and vetoed, if you go back into that budget document, public finance is totally eliminated which means I, who have raised a quarter million dollars, am left holding the bag and not have any money, no CEP money but at all. But in the future, all. should we have public financing of elections? And in the next budget, the budget that I did not support, money is back. 
the money is back. So as you can see. But there are a lot of things in a budget. It wouldn't be fair to accuse you of being for or against something just because it's one of. No, but I'm items. just saying that it is, at the end of the day, it's, it's the, it is what is the public good. But do you, is it the, should we have public financing? No. No? No. Because, because right now we can't afford that. We can't afford that. And, you know, but once again, it's got to be a level, level playing field. You know, if, you know, if, 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 if that's what others are going to get and I'm going to be in the same position, it's a mm-hmm. different story. But moving forward, moving forward, as I see the way it is right now, we are cutting, cutting down major, major expense, you know, things that we do to the towns and cities. Mm-hmm. And where do we fit in there is where the argument is. And what about our legalizing recreational use of marijuana, pro or con? We're not there yet. We're not there yet because you've got to look at public safety. And we do not know what impact it's going to have. So but do you want to hold off on having positions? Do you see how Colorado and Massachusetts Absolutely. We need to do a lot of more studies. So you're agnostic on it? Yes. Okay. Right. What about um, tolls, at, uh, returning tolls to the entrance to our state at the International We Highways? need a transportation lockbox that's absolutely secure. And we know whatever we raise is going to go into the transportation lockbox. So would you support it under that circumstance? I'll have to read the de- the devil is always in the details. So you're agnostic on it, but if it happens, it needs to be in the lockbox. It has to be totally in the lo- and our state, our state unfortunately has a track record where it says one thing and does another and thing over right. and over again, and I will not let that happen. Uh, would you, some people propose uh, raising the top rate of income tax for income either over either half a million or a million dollars a year? And go from six point nine nine to seven point five percent. Any? Would you be for that? No, I would not be for that because I, I I don't believe in raising taxes. That's that's against against my grain of salt. That's not me at all. So whether it be a group of people or another, and look at what we did. We raised taxes in our state, highest ever in the history of the state, times two by this governor, by this democratic administration, and we're back in the hole. And we are back there with these huge deficits. So raising taxes does not solve the problem. And the answer is absolutely no. All right. Well, you got you just got to hear 52 minutes of yeah. one of the more interesting people running for governor. It's a, already a busy race, and we're not even a, we're more than a year away from the election, the 28 gubernatorial election. Doctor Prasad Srinivasan is a state legislator from. Glastonbury who's seeking Glastonbury who's seeking the Republican nomination for governor. Thanks so much for coming on. It was a yeah. real treat to hear your story about the seven dollars and fifty cents <laughs> and the mystical origin story of your time in the U.S. <laughs> and what you've been up to since. Yeah, and, and thank thanks you. for keeping it lively and um, good luck in your campaign. Thank you. I appreciate the inv- invitation. Look yeah. forward to coming back. I again. hope you come back as you're always I'm lo- welcome. I'm looking forward to that. And yes. thank you for joining us on Dateline New Haven. Thanks to. Um, Special thanks to Yellowhaven Hospital for providing financial support. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience, performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.